Good evening to you all. I never saw a sign before. How are you, everybody? Happy to see Norma? Good. How many, how many of you have seen Norma before? Good. Oh, that's good. That means a lot of people haven't, and I'm really happy about that. Um, this is the first Bellini opera, it's certainly in my time, that I can think of here. Uh, Vincenzo Bellini, we always talk about bel canto, right? Beautiful singing, bel canto. Okay, he's one of the three largest figures. Um, Rossini, of course, is the, is the top of that. The next generation, Bellini Donizetti. Uh, we brought you a few Donizetti operas, Lucia, Di Lamamor, The Elixir of Love, Barbersville, you've seen the Barbersville recently, anybody see that? Yeah, yeah, Turk and Italy, yeah. Okay, so you know the basic style, and we always talk about the same thing, the structure, uh, uh, you, the division between music that is sung and played with the orchestra and music that is sort of spoken and accompanied by a harpsichord or pianoforte or something, and that's what we call recitative and, the, um, and, this, and these fixed numbers. And then we talked about this, the structure of most scenes. I'll review this for those of you that heard, have heard it before. Uh, most scenes start with a, an introduction which is slow and then a slow song or aria or duet. And then there's a bridge passage and then there's a fast part. So you get basically something slow and something fast. But you also have to have something that motivates that scene if it's going to make any sense, if it's just not going to be more than a form. So we usually have this slow introduction uh, that's going to ask a question. And usually um, the soprano has a handmaiden there. And at one point she says, tell me, dear. That's how you know the first aria is going to be sung. <laughs> because she's going to tell us, right? And then somebody runs in or something happens as a fast part. And that makes her either joyful, so she sings fast, or angry, so she sings fast or determined, she sings fast, but something motivates that fast part. And the fast part is played twice, basically. It's called a cabaletta, and it goes, it goes fast. It's a cabaletta like a horse, caballo, right? You know the word. Boom, boom. It's repeated, and the second time it's repeated, at the time it was repeated with variations and ornaments to show just how brilliant the, the singer was. At first, that was only the women. Later on, it got to be the men, too. Uh, in a, uh, they don't, they're not as flexible as the women. You all knew that, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, the women can usually go faster, higher, but the men did learn to sing things that went very, very quickly in a, in a different way. So that's our basic structure. The uh, earlier, the slow aria usually has uh, a slow part, a varied slow part, and the first part again. So you get A, B, A. Now, I tell you all that because one of the interesting things we're going to see in Bellini is how he starts to get away from that. Uh, very, very early on. He gets, he is a revolutionary in many ways. Now, unfortunately, he only lived to the age of 34. He was born in 1801, he died in 1835. Uh, and so he didn't get very far with his revolution, but it's very interesting what he might have done, because he was beginning already to break down the system, as it were. He was going to write this, and Norma is the greatest example of this, where he's not going to write every scene with a slow part, a, a slow introduction, a slow song, which is an ABA, a bridge, and then a fast part. He's going to do something else when he feels like it. And, and that when he feels like it is the key to what makes him revolutionary. Because up until that time, you just sort of did that. That's just the way it was. Um, he wrote 11 operas. This is. Uh, uh, this is, uh, he had the same librettist named Felice Romani for eight of those operas. Um, this is 
based on uh, a play. This, is re this, this was premiered 1831 in December, uh, based on a French play by a playwright named Alexandre Soumet, of which premiered this work in 1831. So he picked up a piece of contemporary literature, basically, I mean, immediately. April 1831, the opera is written and performed by December of 1831. The opera was called uh, Norma ou l'infanticide, or infanticide, Norma or infanticide. Does she kill her children? All right, if you know the story of Medea, you know that Medea bears Jason to children and then in vengeance or for fear that these children will be mistreated if they are removed from her, kills, chooses to, to kill the children. Now, Bellini and Romani decided that the Italian public of the time was not really ready to see two children killed on stage, as, mo as most of us are not. So they sort of, they took that out. <laughs> You're going to see her think about it, and she's going to propose the idea to herself as a way out of her very difficult position, which I'm going to explain to you shortly. Uh, but she actually is not, she does not do it which uh, I think makes her more appealing to general opera fans as a heroine. Okay. Um, so uh, the opera is set in Gaul. Uh, that's, uh, I guess that's France today. Um, and it is in the first century uh, before the Christian era. It means about 54, uh, 51 uh, uh, BCE. The Druids are the religion in hand. You're going to see Druid. Norma is a Druidess. Her father, the base, Orofezo, is a Druid. Um, and she has a companion and friend, just two. One is important, one is not important. The important one is Adalgisa, who is a young woman coming from this religious group. And uh, they all have been conquered by the Romans. And so, to make this story more uh, peppery, there's a Roman. You may have guessed it already. The Roman is a tenor, and Norma is a druidess. And they are not supposed to get together in any amorous form. They have, however, fallen in love with each other before the curtain goes up. And there are two children to prove it. Now, the problem for Norma is uh, she's a high priestess. She is, a, she is a, a seer. She can prophesy. She can see the future. Uh, she is, uh, the, the community depends on her to pray and to interpret. Uh, the primary relationship for this deity is with the moon. Okay? So uh, they, put, they count on her. How is she to explain to the community that not only she who is supposedly virginal in this uh, position as high priestess, how is she supposed to explain that she had two children? Uh, she had not heard of the Virgin Mary, of, uh, Virgin Mary, the Virgin Birth of Mary, had uh, something that hadn't happened yet. She couldn't explain it, so she keeps it a secret. And then, of course, how would she be able to explain it, even were she to admit it, and then say to everybody, and the father is the proconsul of Rome. In other words, she and the enemy have gotten together for that same old reason that everybody gets together in opera, because they fell in love. Now that all happened before the curtain goes up. When the curtain goes up, the situation has changed a little bit. And what has changed is that Polione, which is the name of the Roman tenor, proconsul, uh, 
has tired of Norma, and he's fallen in love with a young, another young, chaste virgin, who is also coming from the Druids, and her name is Adalgisa. She is also a soprano. And uh, he's fallen in love with her, and he tells, he has, a, he has a sidekick, Flavio, and Flavio finally says, ah, narra, narrate, tell us the story. And then he tells us a dream he had, and he tells us about Adalgisa in this dream. Now, he wants to take Adalgisa away, bring her to Rome. Uh, Norma knows nothing of this, uh, okay? Um, the Druids are hiding out in the forest because they've been kicked out of their towns by the Romans. Um, and there they are plotting to, uh, to make a revolution and to revenge and to reclaim their, their, uh, their rights. Um, and we're going to meet the other character, Oroveso. He's the base. Uh, why is he the base? He's the base because, A, he is not in love. Two, he is the father of Norma. So usually older men, uh, kings, czars, high priests, or evil people are bases. Uh, so he is, uh, he's two of those things. He is, he is sort of a general. He's sort of a, uh, he is a military type leader. Uh, and uh, he, being Norma's father, of course, uh, is of course, always goes to her with great respect because he knows that his daughter is actually a seer. Now, one of the things that the Druids did, we don't know a lot, apparently, uh, not a lot is known about the practices of the Druids. But one thing that is known is that they put heavy stock in soothsayers or persons who could see, the, see, see into the future. And at one time, <clears throat> um, a little after uh, this Julius Caesar conquered, of course, Gaul, uh, Tiberius and Octavius and finally Claudius all in one way or the other uh, go about limiting the rights of the Druids if not forbidding. So at one point you could not be a Roman cit citizen and a Druid and at the same time they said you may not be a Druid you also may not be a soothsayer or a seer. In other words they're trying to get rid of this particular practice. We do know that the Druids believed in that. And we also know a little bit about uh, one of their sacred rituals um, had to do with the mistletoe. Um, the mistletoe would be cut on the sixth day of the moon, and uh, the trees were very important. In fact, oak trees are terribly important, so guess what? We're going to start the opera in a forest. So that's the forest. We're going to have the scene set for us in this forest, which is all, and the, it's coming to time for Norma to cut the mistletoe. Probably this is the, um, this is the uh, origin of our uh, practice or custom. Nobody does it anymore, of kissing under the mistletoe, but that's probably where it comes from. So uh, that's a little bit of the, the picture. Uh, you've met, you've met uh, the characters now. I'll say a little bit, but start with a piece of trivia, which I like to do these days. Uh, I told you a piece of trivia for um, Moby Dick. How many of you saw Moby Dick? Did you like it? Good. If you didn't see it, you've got two more chances. Don't miss it. It's a fantastic production. Um, I had pieces of trivia. There were pieces of trivia. In 1978, in the Hollywood Bowl, um, Marilyn Horn and Montserrat Caballé came to Los Angeles and gave a concert full of, uh, full of operatic excerpts. And there was this young conductor there, in diapers, uh, who conducted that concert. And that was me. <laughs> I was there. That was my second appearance in Los Angeles. Never did I imagine that 
all these years later, almost 40 years later, I'd actually be conducting Norma here at Los Angeles Opera. But I did conduct the duet, the second act duet, one of the highlights of the opera, which if you came in early enough, you might have heard um, being played for you. So uh, I'm back again after um, an absence of some almost 40 years, and I'm doing Norma again in Los Angeles. Uh, what, what, let's talk a little bit about Bellini and what makes his music special, different. Uh, he's, he's often described as a poet, lyrical. Uh, this is not music that screams or blasts or uh, shakes you up. This is, all, this is music that speaks to the heart, and it speaks to the heart um, uh, in an uh, elegiac, lyrical, sometimes melancholy manner. Uh, he didn't write comedies. He was a very serious man. And uh, he speaks to us through these, um, through these, uh, through the, the medium of the voice, the medium of the melody, and can move us with a phrase. And his genius was to write melodies that spoke, bespoke volumes. Um, this opera ends with an immolation. Uh, that's a little dramatic, isn't it? Yeah, after I just told you what I told you. Yeah, there are dramatic moments, of course, and the end is one of them because. Well, I'm not going to tell you the end, but there's an immolation at the end, um, which is an interesting, interesting thing because one of the biggest fans of Bellini and specifically Norma is guess who? Somebody you'd never imagine, Richard Wagner, who absolutely admired, and I will read you some quotes in a moment from Wagner. He thought it was one of the great operas, and he used it as a model um, in many respects, especially in his early operas, but I find it very interesting that uh, it, you can see little things in this opera. See if you can pick some of them out. The immolation, who knows, maybe that's where the idea came from in the first place. Um, there is a moment when uh, Norma, who has a big gong, she hits this gong usually three times when she's calling everybody together. It's not this supper bell, it's uh, when there's trouble when the community has to gather when there has to when there is a crisis she hits the gong and at one point she hits the gong toward the end of the opera and she calls for everybody to attack rome the moment has come and she hits this and she sings strage sterminio slaughter struggle and extermination of the romans there's a moment that i swear it, Wagner took right out of that and put it into the first act of Die Valkyrie. Um, these, of course, are all imaginings. Maybe he didn't. But you can see something of the Wagnerian roots in this opera. But more important, you see a great deal of what the next generation after Donizetti and Bellini is to take, and that, of course, is uh, Verdi, who was a young man when they were writing these operas. And he is to take it, of course, and to become the zenith of Italian opera. I'll be pointing out some of those as we go in. Um, go in order. Now, um, the, this is an opera about, uh, actually, more about women in love than about women and men in love. And why do I say that? Adelgisa and Norma are associated by culture, by race, by religion, and they are personally friends. Even though Norma is on a higher, higher social level, Adelgisa maybe was her childhood friend or something, but they love each other. Now, what happens? Norma has this secret. She keeps the secret from everybody, including Adalgisa. Now, Adalgisa has a secret now. The secret is that the Roman consul Polione has declared his love and wants to take her to Rome. So who, in whom does she confide? Norma. 
So she goes to confide in Norma. Of course, the unsuspecting Adelgisa uh, is taken aback a little bit by Norma's reaction. But at a certain point, um, the, the truth comes out between the two of them. What do most operatic women do at that point? They tear each other's hair, scratch each other, scream at each other, kill each other, do anything. But not Norma and Adalgisa. Adalgisa and Norma have a bond, and that is the bond of honor and of fidelity and integrity. And instead, Adalgisa of saying, oh, you hussy, Norma, you have, uh, you've, you've been out with Polione, and Pontius says, what do you mean, you've taken my man? They say, how dare he? And they bond. And in essence, this opera is more about the love and fidelity of these two women to each other than it is about the love of, of the, the, the classic love of tenor and soprano. By the way, there are two sopranos in this opera. Adalgisa is also a soprano, although it has been traditionally sung by a mezzo-soprano. But there is no question that this was a soprano, and that the role is very, very, very high. And some people, Maestro Muti, for example, when he performed this and recorded it, recorded it with two sopranos. And there is a wonderful recording, you heard a little bit of it, of Joan Sutherland and Montserrat Caballé, Montserrat Caballé singing Adalgisa. So this is, in fact, the, the original conception. Now, um, very, I mentioned that there's very, um, very slowly going to be the dissolution of some of the characteristic structure uh, of the alternating recitative in the main body. Wagner liked this? Yes, I'm sure that's part of what Wagner liked because Wagner was all about content determining form and not form determining content. Um, there is another type of uh, Bellini crescendo. Now we remember the Rossini crescendo. That's the one where there's a repetitive phrase, usually fast. It's repeated three times, uh, and then it gets to a loud climax. So it's a volume. It's a crescendo of volume. It's fast. It's exciting. He usually does it twice if it's in the overture. He usually employs it at the end of the first act. Um, Bellini doesn't use that. He has a crescendo of a different type. It's an emotional crescendo, and it is built on alternation of the alternation of dynamics and expression, alternating loud and soft harmonic development. You will see several p points, and of course the, the masterpiece of all are the last five minutes, where the final ensemble is built with this extraordinary crescendo, which goes in slow motion, not in fast motion. So uh, Bellini is a master of that. Uh, he's writing at a time when the, when the uh, comic opera is still very popular, but he's writing at the end of that time. He's writing in the 1830s. This, this, this piece was uh, first performed in 1831. Uh, by the 1840s, the comic operas were starting to lose out in popularity to the melodrama. And so here you see the melodrama. Um, and this is what, that's what. Uh, he's called more Bellini, that is, ph philosophical or romantic than the early Rossini. Um, but the principle is still that the voice uh, is dominant, but the voice, by carrying the nuance of the words and text, this is one of Bellini's strongest suits. 
um, and you'll be able to follow the text. And uh, of course, in translation, you can't get that. But the but the beauty of the Italian together with the vocal line is one of the great um, characteristics. So we can actually speak of a fragmentation a little bit. We have this. We had this old structure. We're going to start breaking it down. You're going to hear some examples of the old structure, but you're also going to see fragments. How a scene uh, has no identifiable form, and that's no big deal to us. But it was a big deal to the Italians at the time, and some of them objected to it. For instance, it was one of the rules was you had to have the chorus on stage. Everybody had to be on stage at the end of Act One. Remember that was called a concertato. Get everybody on. Usually there's a stalemate in the dramatic action. It can't go forward. It can't go backwards. So it's obviously time for intermission. But before you go to intermission, we want to give you a musical climax. We want to give you a lot of excitement. So everybody was supposed to be on stage. Well. Bellini simply didn't want the chorus to come on stage at the end of Act One of Norma, uh, because it was all about the trio. It was about Adalgisa and Norma and their confrontation with Polione. So um, he had to compromise. The chorus is off stage singing. They're there, but you won't see them, and you'll barely hear them. But that's the kind of thing I'm referring to. He wanted it that way, and so he insisted on having it his way. So um, this is, uh, uh, again, an opera that has to do with love, but a sort of a different love. The love triangle, triangle here is not unusual in its two women and one man. Uh, who, both, the man wants both women, but the women stick together, and that is unusual. Another thing that is unusual is uh, every main character in most operas get at least one big aria uh, with all the five parts, the introduction, the slow part, the bridge, and the cabaletta, um, at least one of them. And the first thing, the tenor's going to come out, and he's going to come right out and give you that. Standard, one, two, three, four, five. You're going to get it right at the beginning. And um, uh, Norma's going to give you a very inspired, somewhat changed of it. But Adalgisa doesn't even get an aria. She doesn't even get a scene. That's an anomaly. That's very rare that a major character does not have, uh, is not given the dignity. Part of the reason being that the, all of the stars did not want to be uh, second bested. Nobody wanted to have the other people have arias that they didn't have. So that's another interesting thing. Now, I want to just quickly say some words about um, uh, these, each, each one of these characters, and then we're going to move on to uh, move on to the pieces of music. Um, here's the things to think about. Norma is a, we said, a druid, a priestess. She's in love with the Roman proconsul. While she's representing the, her people, the people are simmering. They want a revolution. She stops them in the first scene. She says, "No, it's not time yet." And they're brimming. They want to fight. They want to revolt. She says, "No, no, it's not time." She's consulted the Luna, the the moon. And she says something very interesting. She says, Rome will fall of its own vices. Now, did Norma know that? No. Bellini did, because we all knew it. That's what happened. But that's how he put words in the mouth, and that's how to show that, that Norma was a seer. By the way, I should say that uh, the characters of this opera are all fictitious. But the situation uh, is historic. Um, so the reason uh, Norma at one point at the end of the opera says, Norma non mente. Norma does not lie. However, she's never told anybody about those babies. She's never told anybody about Rome. I mean, she's, she's hidden a lot. 
So she does lie, of course, but she's been hiding this fact. And uh, when the populace wants to fight Rome, she tells them, no, don't do it, it's not time. Part of the reason she does that is because she's in love with Polione. So, so much for that. Now, um, he fancies Aunt Algisa, um, we know that. Uh, we know that the girls are gonna stick together in that, they're gonna have compassion for each other. Um, and we also know that the main, the main vocabulary of these ladies is vocal lyricism. Uh, Verdi wrote, Bellini wrote long, long, long melodic lines such as no one had done before him, and what truth and power of declamation. That's praise from Giuseppe Verdi. Rossini, the words are so enmeshed in the notes and the notes in the words that together they form a complete and perfect whole. Two big geniuses paying praise to Norman. Richard Wagner, among all of, of Bellini's creation, Norma is the richest in the profoundly lyrical way. True melody is united with intimate paths and passion. He conducted Norma as a young man, and as late as 1872, that's 40 years after that, he still wrote, said Bellini wrote melodies more than one's, one own, one's own dreams. Now, Wagner continued to admire Bellini uh, uncharacteristically because he admired nobody except for himself. Shakespeare, Beethoven, and Wagner. But he did admire Bellini, and he, uh, and he continued to say so. He wrote an essay on Bellini, defending Bellini, and you can read that at any time. You just look up uh, Richard Wagner on Bellini. You'll find it in the, uh, in, uh, in the internet. So one of, the, uh, one of the, uh, the opera's most famous arias, which is called Casta Diva, is um, the, in the first act, it's not only the first act, it is the first thing that Norma sings. In fact, it is the slow part of her scene. There's an introduction, she speaks to the crowd, and she says, I hear voices calling for war and rebellion, no. And then she sings a prayer to the moon, Casta Diva. Now, Diva, um, uh, I, I want to say, first of all, that in, uh, this, this aria is so famous and has become so much an object of almost idolatry in the opera world. Uh, I like to refer to it as the Mona Lisa of the opera world. Casta diva, chaste, casta, diva, goddess. Okay, a dio is a god, a dea uh, is, like our, uh, is, is the goddess. Um, also, diva became common, in common usage, became what we called the big sopranos, the first sopranos, the top of the heap. She's a diva, isn't it? She's a prima donna, a first woman, a diva. And so Casta Diva uh, became sort of a representation, not just of, of the operatic song, but the operatic soprano itself. And then in the 1950s, there came that incredible moment in opera where Maria Callas took the stage and impersonated Norma, and she became the diva assoluta. And that, she held on to that title. Nobody gave it to her, but everybody just said it. That was what she was called for the rest of her life, and even more so after her death. So uh, you'll be hearing that, that uh, the meshing of the diva between the goddess and the opera, opera singer, I think, is a very interesting thing. So now I want to start playing things for you here, and we'll talk as we go. The opera starts, as all operas do, with a prelude or an overture. It's called the Sinfonia in Italian. This one is very short. It's four minutes long. But like all good overtures, it gives you a little, just a touch, of the excitement of what's going to happen. 
Now, you know, uh, overtures or preludes very often had the form slow, fast, and fast repeated. Uh, this one skips slow. Uh, it's fast. But it sounds like it's slow. If you listen to it, it's a typical beginning of a slow movement. slow phrase and that's that type of lyricism in several notes Bellini establishes his deep expression and then on we go is this the introduction no it's the main body of the work he thrusts you into this excitement. Now, this has all of the excitement of the Rossini overture, but not the form. Repeated notes. The rhythm, the rhythmic excitement. One excerpt from the opera. It picks out one piece. A declaration of love. And he's going to play that as its main subject, and it's going to be repeated several times. That he'll bring back the beginning a little bit, and then he puts something at the end which is extraordinary. Something that was in the opera and out of the opera, uh, a mystical moment, and that's going to happen just before the end of the overture. And that mystical moment uh, sounds a little bit like. Uh, Kluck and Orpheus and Eurydice, which comes from the previous century, and a little bit like the young Berlioz. And this is contemporaneous with the young, 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 young Berlioz. Quite extraordinary. Now, the first thing we do in every opera is to tell us where we are. Where are we? Who are we? We get very slow, majestic music. Now, when you listen to this opera, I want you to listen through the prism of Beethoven you will hear an enormous amount of influence of Beethoven. Now, where are we? It's, we are in the woods. It's night. There are big oak trees. There's a mistletoe, presumably, hanging from one of these oak trees. And we are going to meet, of course, all the men. We meet, usually the chorus comes out at the beginning of the opera because uh, they didn't want to put a, a famous aria right at the beginning because people were coming in late and still drinking and eating and smoking their cigars. So it was sort of a throwaway. This wasn't going to be the big hit of the evening, but it was going to orientate those who had the, the sense to get there on time, wanted to see the beginning of the show. They would um, have something that gives the social context. And so the social context here, the Druids, um, the men are out there, talking about let's go to war and Orovezo is pumping them up. Orovezo is the bass. He doesn't really get his own aria. In fact, Richard Wagner, when he conducted the opera, composed an aria for Orovezo because he felt sorry for him. He felt he should have one. Uncharacteristically empathetic, that case. 
hear the solemn march-like music. Now, so we're going to meet, we're going to meet Oroveso, the bass, and we're going to meet the men's chorus, and they're going to tell us, you know, what, what they're all about. Now, what are they all about? War. Let's skip ahead on this so you can... A war march. Typical of the time. The men, let's go to war. And then off they go, and we get to the personal drama. Here it starts. Here's the agitation. Here comes the tenor. And there's Luciano Pavarotti. So this is a recitative, but there's no harpsichord. Everything is written with the orchestra. So there's a perfect blending from recitative to set piece throughout the entire opera. That's his pal Flavio, and they're talking, and he's going to say, well, tell me all about what's bothering you, Polione. And so he strikes up a song. Here it is. And this is the slow part. I'm going to sing this twice. all about beautiful singing. You're going to hear a lot of beautiful singing tonight. I would wager, I won't say that there isn't a cast that's, that there's nobody in the world that's as good, better, or as good, but there is no cast that is better. We have four fantastic, fabulous solos. I have never seen a Norma where there are four great voices. One of the big problems with this opera is you can't find people to sing it. It's unbelievably difficult for three of those roles. Um, Angela Mead is Norma, Jamie Barton, they both sang it at the Met last year, made a sensation, but we had, we had already hired them, so that was good. Um, <laughs> we knew what we were getting. Uh, we have, in the meantime, found a young tenor whose name is Russell Thomas, who is absolutely fantastic. And Polione is a very, uh, very difficult role and one that is ungrateful. Nobody cares about him at the end. After all, he behaves so badly anyway. But nobody cares about what the tenor does. It's all about the women. This man is so good, I think you're going to care a lot by what you're hearing. And Morris Robinson, who some of you may remember, has one of the most biggest, beautiful bass voices um, in the world. Now, here's the fast part. It is preceded by a march-like character. There's a lot of march music in the first act. The fast part of Bellini, uh, uh, the structure, we talked about the cabaletta. The fast part of, of Bellini is slower than Rossini, is slower than Donizetti, because it is basically lyrical. It is not about the fireworks, it is still about the expression. And that also is the beginning of a revolution. Now Norma comes in, I just want to give you an idea how important she is. The whole orchestra, full force. That's what happens when you walk in the room if you're Norma. 
And she calls right out to everybody in her first recitative. Voices of sedition, voices of war. You see? No orchestra. You're going to get the text in very simple manner and the orchestra in small gestures, which are dramatic. This is the high priestess. And then she's going to start, and she's going to sing to the moon. Casta Diva, this is how it starts. Complete magic from the first instant. And instead of having her sing right away, she prays, and the solo flute speaks for her. Interrupt it and put it right on to where? Sorry, but you're going to hear it in a few minutes. <laughs> I want to get to the end of the opera here. Here is Maria Callas. If you would like to seek Maria Callas sing this, there's a lot of material on YouTube. Go right home and see it tonight. Two great divas of Norma and the Bel Canto in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s. Uh, two poles there, Maria Callas on the one hand. Uh, although not born Italian, she was so schooled in the Italian culture, the language, that she in fact was the greatest representative of this pure singing, this bel canto singing, because she was such a dramatic personality. She was able to bring drama into that voice, drama into that lyrical movement. On the other hand, there was Joan Sutherland, uh, Anglo-Saxon, uh, not primarily a dramatic personality. Uh, I don't mean, she looked actually very dramatic. She was very impressive. But she had one of the most extraordinary instruments that has ever walked on this earth and perfect for bel canto operas because she could sing high and low fast and slow and everything was beautiful now you'll hear a little bit here this is now the second part the so-called cabaletta which is it turns out that casta diva is the beginning of of the structure and here's the faster part and here's joan sutherland Just a brief introduction to uh, Adalgisa. Now, Adalgisa does not walk in with the entire orchestra thundering because she's just Adalgisa. We get this picture of this young woman, classic bel canto heroine, young, virginal, honest, in love, uh, and with integrity. 
She will often become a victim because of all of those good qualities. Norma, on the other hand, is going to be the progenitress of the future, the strong women. Verdi's going to have that Abagail in Nabucco. He's going to have Lady Macbeth. Um, Norma is strong and dramatic on the one hand. Uh, Adalgisa is, um, is, is, is loving, loved, and inspires us with that tender feeling. Now, I had a lot more excerpts, but um, I'm not going to be able to play them all for you, unfortunately. But let me give you a few more while you get into the first confrontation between Polione and Adalgisa. Listen to that very busy music in the orchestra. The strings are repeating over and over an obsessive theme. Verdi will take that technique and use it right up into the late operas. To show you how close Verdi followed what Bellini did, listen to this. The strings play their repeated, repeated motives. The woodwinds provide the harmony, and then a contrasting, contrasting melody, woodwinds and violins together. Listen to this, Placido Domingo. Strings, the winds give the harmony. This, of course, is Verdi. This is La Traviata. Here comes the repeated rhythm. The melody. Here's another interesting example in the second act. Norma, those are tears. In her great, uh, a great soliloquy where she has to think about will she kill her children or will she not kill her children? She weeps. La Traviata. Fourth act, Violetta is dying. So you see how close that, that relationship is. Uh, if you come back to the next performance of Norma, I'll talk less at the beginning and play you more excerpts. Okay? <laughs> uh, but you did get a little bit of background on all of this. Now, I'm not going to tell you the end of the story because that takes, that takes all of the fun out of it. It is, however, one of the most extraordinary, extraordinary vocal exhibitions you're going to get tonight. And the orchestra is on fire. They love the singers, and you're going to, we're going to give you a lot of fire also down the pit. It's considered that this is not very interesting for conductors to conduct these operas because you have to supposedly follow the singers all the time. But if you really are into it, we're able to provide some of it too. I'm going to do that tonight. Thank you very much for coming. That was